The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Good morning, Ecclesia. I, I have, as I joke with my wife, about $100,000 of theological ex, um, education. I don't know if it's worth that much, but that's what they charged me. Um, and I don't know that Astro Sunday falls anywhere on the liturgical calendar. So Stephen maybe just made that up, but I'm cool if you just want to go with it. We can just do that. Um, it's good to be with you and to worship in this place. Um, as we enter our time in the scriptures, let's ask God's blessing. I'm Creator God. Thank you for being with us and joining us both here, Lord, and in the other parts of our lives. And God, we celebrate the fact that you have come to us as broken and fallible and fallen people and extended your grace and redemption and your love to us. And as we have received, God, we would pray that we would become people of grace and redemption extending that to others, speaking words of healing and restoration. And Lord, we would ask that you continue to give us a sense of our place in your kingdom and our story. And toward that end, God, I ask that you pour through me the gift of teaching, that everything said here be from you and because of you and guiding us towards you, God, as we partner with you to bring about your preferred future for all of creation. And we ask it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I was thinking last week about this experience I had with my oldest daughter. I have two daughters. The oldest is 15 and the other is 13. And two weeks ago, um, on that Thursday night, uh, was the Living Water Gala downtown. And so if you've been around Ecclesia for a while, you know about our partnership with Living Water and providing clean water for people all across the globe. And so last Thursday was the gala where so many people come to Houston and it's a fundraiser and all of us who are connected have an opportunity to go and hear the stories. And so my youngest daughter had her very last school volleyball game that night. So my wife took her to that. And so I took my 15-year-old as my plus one to this event. And so she had a test the next day and I told her, okay, Malia, here's what we'll do. Um, we'll go and as soon as you start feeling like, hey, I'm tired, I need to be rested for the next day, we'll, we'll just leave. So we did and it was a great night and we're on our way home and it's about a 20 minute drive from, in the best circumstances, from downtown to, to our house. And so as we're going down the freeway, we're having what I, as her father, think is an incredible conversation where I'm getting to dispense all of my life wisdom and learning, and she is soaking it up. And at some point, maybe several points along our journey, it occurs to her, gosh, I'm so blessed to have such a wise and thoughtful father who loves me. I'm enjoying this conversation probably even more than he is. And then her phone rings and she gets um, a FaceTime call. I guess that's what you call it. Is it FaceTime is still a phone, is a call. And it is her really good friend who lives up in Spring. 
And this girl, this is the kind of friend that we prayed for for years. They met several years ago at camp, a camp that neither one of them wanted to go to at the time, but they met each other and they became fast friends and they have a lot in common. They're the same age and the same grade. They're both biracial. They um, have a lot of the same family friends and family connections. And so in that time, they've gone to other camps together and retreats. They were at this long camp this last summer together for 10 days and they were roommates. They just have fallen in love with each other, sleepovers, all of those kinds of things. So in many ways, she is an answer to prayer for us. So when she calls in the middle of this conversation, uh, Malia takes the call. And even though we have prayed for this person, they have known each other for two years and she has known me her whole life, but she decides to take the call anyway. And so they're looking at each other and uh, Malia says, as she opens the phone, as she answers the call, she goes, hey, um, we're driving and I'm in the car with my dad, <laughs> which is like a universal teenager for like, let's not talk about any of the stuff that we normally talk about. So you know that game you play when you have teenagers, like they act like you don't know stuff and you act like you don't know the stuff that they think you don't know, like that little game. And so after giving the signal for whatever you called about, we're not talking about that, they start to have this really interesting conversation about absolutely nothing. And what I mean by absolutely nothing is they just start going through like the last two years of text messages that they have exchanged with each other and the attachments and the pictures. And they start like laughing and giggling. And they're just telling the story of how all of these text messages are connected to other people and others. And there's like, you're just going through. I have wondered if I have raised the oddest children in the universe before. And this was one of those moments. You're just going back over old stories, old text messages that you've already lived through. And then right when I was hitting like peak father criticizing my children in my mind, things that I would never say, you're so weird um, kind of thing, because yes, for all teenagers need to know, we think you are as weird as you think we are weird. <laughs> it dawned on me this is the same thing I do with my friends. Like when, when we're together, there's always new stuff to talk about. Other things are going on both in our lives and in the world around us. But a lot of what we talk about are things that we've already talked about. So like just this weekend, I was in Arkansas. The reason that I went there is because my closest friend in the world, I was best man in his wedding. He was best man in my wedding. Last month, his father died, and we didn't get a chance to all get together in the fall like we normally do. I said, I'll just come up there and hang out with you, and we'll get to talk and visit, and we kind of process through all that because life has been really busy for him and some other things. And like a good part of that conversation is just telling stories. And I would bet for you, that when you're with friends, people you're close to, maybe your small group, especially people who have known you a long time, like what you do is you tell stories. Human beings are kind of wired for stories. 
It's the way that we share and connect. And when you, when you meet someone, even for the first time, you don't sit down with someone as you're getting to know them and just start outlining the things of your life as if they are just all facts, like you're just a bundle of facts. And that even if you did, you know instinctively that they wouldn't really understand you, like if they knew your bio, if they knew where you were born and the names of your kid, like that's not you, you are your stories. And I would bet that when your children come to you and that there are stories that they love to tell and to have retold, maybe the story of their birth or how mom and dad started dating, stories are the way that we live our lives. It's actually the way that we make sense of our lives. Without stories, um, we don't have any framework to understand what's actually happening to us. And stories aren't an escape from reality. Stories are the way that we make sense of reality. So Jonathan Gotzel in his book, Storytelling Animal, he talks about human beings this way. He says, we are as a species addicted to story. Even when the body goes to sleep, the mind stays up all night telling itself stories. So here's why I want you to know that. I want you to know that because your life will never make sense to you. Your life will make more sense to you when you know your story and when you can tell your story. And your life with God will make more sense to you when you can tell your story. So if you've been around Ecclesia for the last um, couple of months, you know that Pastor Chris and I are in a series where we're talking about figures from Christian history and, and what they meant both at the time and what they mean to us as a church moving forward. And one of those is a great storyteller who I want to introduce some of you to. His name is Fyodor Dostoevsky. And Dostoevsky wasn't a theologian or a pastor or a priest. He was fundamentally a storyteller. So if you don't know, and some of you were punished with having to read Dostoevsky in high school or college, um, I met a guy last week who said, I had to take a class in college on Russian writers, and I prayed for him right then because I know that that has to be a demon that stuck with him forever. But Dostoevsky was a Russian writer. He was born in 1821, and he died in 1881. And like most Russian writers, he was absolutely a mess. And like most writers, he was a procrastinator. But he was born an aristocrat, but was constantly broke, and the reason that he was constantly broke is because he was also an alcoholic and a chronic gambler. The money that he made, he mostly wiled away on gambling and alcohol. Matter of fact, there were times where Dostoevsky was so broke that he couldn't afford the postage to mail in a completed manuscript to his publisher. And then something changed. He was arrested. He was arrested by Tsar Nikolai I, Nicholas I, for treason and imprisoned. And he was imprisoned for eight months. 
And the sentence that he got for treason when he was arrested was death. But Tsar Nicholas had no intention ever of actually killing Dostoevsky or the people that were arrested with him. So after eight months in prison, um, he was blindfolded and led out to in front of a firing squad, posted down. They take the blindfolds off. The firing squad is there. And as they're going through the motions of this execution, in rides a, a rider on a white horse with a commutation of his death sentence, all of which was prearranged by Nicholas I. And they're spared. One, one of the men who was facing the firing squad that night was so elated over having his life spared that he actually had a heart attack and died from the excitement. But Dostoevsky spent that night back in his cell singing. So after a while, he was loaded on a train and sent to prison in Siberia. And when he arrived there, he met a woman whose husband was also imprisoned in Siberia. And she had decided to give her life to visiting and working with prisoners. And so when she met Fyodor Dostoevsky, she gave him a book. It was the New Testament. And she had so ingrained the New Testament into her life that she virtually had it memorized. And she gave it to prisoners because at the time, it was the only book allowed in Russian prisons. And so in his cell, he poured over the New Testament again and again and again until he very much like her had it memorized. And this became such a deeply ingrained part of his life that all of Dostoevsky's stories from that point on moving forward in his life are fundamentally about two things, grace and redemption. And if you know his life story really well, one of the things that's so obvious in his storytelling is that every story Dostoevsky tells is his story. And what's meaningful about that for you and for me is that when you open the pages of Scripture, what you find in the New Testament are men and women who talk about grace and redemption, who talk about their encounters with God, not as a list of bullet points someplace, not as a list of propositions, not even as a list of beliefs that you need to have to believe what they talk about, is their personal story of encountering Jesus. So there are a bunch of sermons in the New Testament, and the overwhelming majority of those sermons are people telling their story of Jesus. So one of my favorites is in Acts 26. And in Acts 26, Paul has been arrested. And as he kind of winds his way through the whole judiciary system there and appealing and talking to this person and talking to that person, he finally has an audience with King Agrippa. And he tells King Agrippa, he says, look, the only reason that I've been arrested, the only reason that I'm in front of you is because I have hope. And the reason that I have hope 
and the reason I've been arrested is because I have hope in something that no one, no thinking person should actually have hope in. And that's because I just came to believe that people get up out of the grave. And one of the people who got out of the grave was this guy named Jesus. And that's the reason I have hope. And as he's telling him all about his hope, Paul, in the middle of this discourse, starts to say this in Acts 26. He says, on one occasion, I was traveling to Damascus, authorized and commissioned by the chief priest to find and imprison more of his followers, more of Jesus's followers. It was about midday, your excellency, when I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the noonday sun, shining around my companions and me. We all fell to the ground in fear, and then I heard a voice. The words were in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When you kick against the cattle prod, you're only hurting yourself. I asked, Lord, who are you? And the Lord answered, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Get up now and stand upright on your feet. I have appeared to you for a reason. I'm appointing you to serve me. You are to tell my story and how you have seen me. And you are to continue to tell the story in the future. I will rescue you from your Jewish opponents and from the outsiders, for it is the outsiders I am sending you. It will be your mission to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. This is so that they may receive forgiveness of all their sins and have a place among those who are set apart for a holy purpose through having faith in me. So this is what happens. Paul, with this audience and the king, he says, this is what happened to me. I was going along in my life and I was doing the things that I thought were right to do, but I had an encounter with Jesus and Jesus wants me to tell the story about my encounter with Jesus. Now Luke who writes Acts, and Paul are the most educated of the apostles who pen the New Testament. And they could have written about anything in any way they wanted to, but they don't. What they do is tell stories. And not just any story, but they tell their story. Their story of their encounters with Jesus. And you read the book of Acts. Do you know what you hear Paul saying? What you hear Peter saying? I saw, I heard, I experienced. And they're not the only one. In 1 John, the Apostle John begins this way. This is what he says. We want to tell you about the one who was from the beginning. We have seen him with our own eyes, heard him with our own ears, and touched him with our own hands. This one is the manifestation of the life-giving voice, and he showed us real life, eternal life. We have seen it all, and we can't Keep what we witnessed quiet. 
We have to share it with you. We are inviting you to experience eternal life through the one who was with Father and came down to us. What we saw and heard, we pass on to you so that you too will be connected with us intimately and become family. Our family is united by our connection with the Father and his Son, Jesus, the Anointed One. And we write all this because retelling this story fulfills our joy. And this is why we need people to become storytellers. This is why we need people like Fyodor Dostoevsky. When you open the scriptures, you can't just flip through it and turn to T for Trinity or B for baptism. We want to think of it as an encyclopedia. There's no index in the back like your car manual. So how do I fix the battery? Let me look in the index and find, because someone told me that the Bible is a guidebook. The Bible's a storybook. It begins with story and it's telling one story. And your job, my job, is to find our place in the story. The Old Testament comes to us as a story of how one people became a people and how Jesus comes to us through that people. In Matthew, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, um, you're not like all those other teachers that we see. Why do you teach in parables? And the rest of the New Testament are disciples telling their stories of encounter with Jesus. And here's why that's important for you. Because somewhere in your path, God has placed someone, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit said to you, you need to tell them about Jesus, or you need to tell them something about Jesus. And then something else inside of you, another voice inside of you, said, slow down. What if they ask you a question that you don't know the answer to? What if you say something wrong? What if you don't know? And so another voice says to you again, now you're schizophrenic. I know what I'll do. I will give them my pastor's email address. I will send them to my small group leader. She seems to know a lot. And all the while, the only thing that the scriptures have asked you to do is tell your story. Your story of encountering Jesus. I was going along in my life and then this happened. And you will sit down with someone whose husband's left, whose wife's left, whose kids are misfiring, who are in financial difficulties, 
And all you have to say is, I don't know what you're going to do, but I know when that happens to me, there's only one thing that I can turn to. And that's not a tactic. That's the truth. It's just telling your story. Dostoevsky asked this question. He says, how could you live and have no story to tell? So if you were punished in high school and had to read Dostoevsky, you'll remember that Crime and Punishment is about a man who fundamentally, philosophically believes that he lives on a different moral plane than other people. And so he commits a murder, both for the money and just for the experience of it. And he gets the outcome, the overflow of what you would think that would be. There is this descent into guilt and madness. And he is saved, he is redeemed by a converted prostitute named Sonia. He experiences grace and redemption. Maybe some of you had to read The Idiot. And The, the Idiot is this archetypal character in um, literature called the holy fool. And the holy fool only seems like a fool because he sees what everybody else fails to see about virtue and vice. And because he lives so differently than everyone else, he's the outcast. And in the course of the idiot, it come, it, people see it's revealed that he really is living on a higher moral plane. He knows more about virtue. And at the end, the closing scene of the idiot is him forgiving a man who has just murdered the woman that he loves. The story is about grace and redemption. This is my copy of the Brothers Karamazov, which I only have because I had a homiletics professor. I had a preaching professor who said, every preacher needs to read the Brothers Karamazov, and I was foolish enough to be one of the five people who did. <laughs> and you should not read this book it is too long. There are too many characters. It is dense. Like when you pick up a book and the publishers have put an index of who all the characters are because he uses different names for them at different times. And who's who, like when you have to do all that, save it. But it's about a group of brothers. But there are two of them at the heart. And one just knows everything that's wrong with the world, has a diagnosis for why governments and particularly religion has failed the world. He's an atheist and hardcore about it, and he's got another brother who has come to have faith in God. And in this conversation, toward the end of the book, where he has diagnosed all of the problems in the world, but has no solution to offer, Ivan, his brother, says to him, I do not know the answer to the problem of evil, but I do know love. 
And the Brothers Karamazov has every element of Theodore Dostoevsky's life. Murdered father, epilepsy, extramarital affairs, prison. The Brothers Karamazov, the story of grace and redemption, the story of love worked out in the world isn't just a story. It's Fyodor Dostoevsky's story. All of his stories are his story. Two weeks after the Brothers Karamazov was published, Fyodor Dostoevsky was discovered dead. And in his lap sat his most precious possession in the world. It was a book, a book given to him by a woman in Serbia, his New Testament. And, and what if Fyodor Dostoevsky couldn't die until he had nothing left to say? And the question for you is what do you have to say? What story do you have to tell? What beauty will go untold if you don't tell your story? Who will be left to wither? What will be left unknown if you don't tell your story? Because even in all of the ups and downs, the stands and slips of your life, there is grace and redemption. And maybe the idiot was right when he says beauty will save the earth. Ecclesia, let me pray for you. God, would you give us a clear sense of what you are working out in our lives and in our story for the benefit, for the sake of the world? And that we would so inhabit your story that our connection with you just seeps out in all of our interactions with those around you. And so, God, we would ask that you give us clarity and that you would give us peace, that you are at work in powerful and clear, dynamic ways to bring about grace and redemption to those who you have brought into our path. And we ask it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ectasiahouston.org.